Got a man in freezing full of fact. Uh-huh. You ready, Ron? I'm ready. You ready, Dave? I'm ready, Slick. Are you? Welcome to PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Soboleski, and this is episode one of season one of the toxicology series that Susan Mazur, the medical director for toxicology at Seattle Children's, and I put together. This episode will focus on the general approach to the poisoned pediatric patient. Take it away, Susan. Hello, and thank you so much for having me. Today, I'm going to discuss a brief overview of the general approach to the poisoned pediatric patient in your emergency department. Pediatric poisonings are really common, and according to National Poison Center data, every year in the U.S., we see about 1.3 million calls to poison centers for exposures in patients less than 20 years old. This accounts for about 80% of all poison center phone calls. Many of these patients are managed at home, but you will likely see a patient with a history of an ingestion on your next shift in the pediatric emergency department. In general, we think about poisonings occurring in two different distinct age groups. The first of these is toddlers. As you know, toddlers explore the world by putting things in their mouths, so they most commonly get into things in their own environment, which is at home, such as household cleaning products, liquid acetaminophen, and cold and cough medicines, things that are under the sink and in the bathroom in people's homes. In terms of reasons for toddlers to be hospitalized, Clonidine and buprenorphine account for most hospitalizations in the toddler age group, and we will talk about those poisons in a future podcast. Also, usually toddlers with ingestions are discovered right away. The time of ingestion is often able to be discerned because families can usually pinpoint the amount of time when the child was missing or oddly quiet. The second age group that we commonly see with ingestions or poisonings is teenagers, We know that teenagers are more likely to experiment with drugs or someone else's medicine, and unfortunately, they're more likely to intentionally take an overdose. When they do this, they may take multiple different products, and they may or may not be found right away or admit to the ingestion right away, so timing of the ingestion may not be as well known. So this patient comes into the emergency department, and for this talk, we're going to assume that the patient's airway, breathing, and circulation are intact. So how do you approach these patients with an unknown ingestion who are rolling into the ED? So first things first, super important, is the history. So my big questions in taking a history from the family or the patient is what, how much, and when? So first, let's talk about the what. If they brought the containers, yay, that is great. If they didn't bring the containers, um, someone could be sent home to go get them. Someone could be sent to the house to take a picture and send it to the family. It's always great to see what the containers say and what is left in them. If they come in with a random pill or half of a random pill and you can read the imprint on the pill, it's very easy to look up what that pill imprint stands for online or you can call your local poison center for help identifying an individual pill. Next historical question is how much? 
toxicologists, we love to do the math milligrams per kilo if we can get it. So we assume that the largest amount that is missing from the bottle that you have has been ingested into the child. We often recommend doing a pill count. So see what is left in the bottle and subtract from the amount was dispensed. And the next question is when. So if we can, we like to know exactly when the ingestion has occurred. And the reason for that is because there are some poisons or drugs where we can use a nomogram using the level of the drug for assessing risk. And for that, we really need to know the time of ingestion. After you've taken your excellent history, next up is your physical exam. So let's start by talking about vital signs. If we see a patient with tachycardia and hypertension, then we suspect a couple of big, different big classes of drugs. The first of these is sympathomimetic drugs. Examples of those could be amphetamine-like drugs or cocaine-like drugs. And these induce this fight or flight type of picture. Imagine your patient has been chased by a lion. They'll have tachycardia and hypertension as they run away from the lion. Another big group of drugs that causes tachycardia and hypertension together is anticholinergic drugs. And the drugs that I think of in this category that we see most commonly in pediatrics are diphenhydramine or tricyclic antidepressants. And these also present with tachycardia and hypertension. Next, let's talk about bradycardia and hypotension. The most common drugs that we see that cause these constellation of vital signs are sympatholytics. So think opioids, sedatives, and beta blockers. And then cholinergic agents, which we don't see too common in an urban emergency department setting, but much more common in a rural setting. And the biggest example of cholinergic agents is organophosphates or pesticides. Next up in physical exam, I always want to know about the pupils. If the pupils are constricted, it gives us a big clue. This could be an opioid or another sedative hypnotic. Also cholinergics, again, those organophosphate pesticides can be responsible for constricted small pupils. And conversely, dilated pupils point us towards anticholinergics like diphenhydramine and sympathomimetics. Again, cocaine, amphetamine-like drugs, because you're going to need big pupils as you're running away from that lion so you can see as much as you can. What are some other things we might ask you about in the toxicology physical exam? We want to know about the patient's mental status. We want to know whether the skin is sweaty or dry whether the bowel sounds are present, hyperactive, or hypoactive, reflexes, clonus, and rigidity. These physical exam findings help us sort our patient into different categories and may give us a clue to what's been ingested. Next, let's talk about toxidromes or toxic syndromes. Toxidromes is just a cool sounding term for a constellation of findings that point toxicologists to a certain poisoning. We'll talk about three different toxidromes here. The first is nicknamed sludge, S-L-U-D-G-E. A classic example of something that causes the sludge toxidrome is cholinergics. Again, those organophosphate pesticides. 
And sludge stands for salivation, lacrimation, urination, defecation, GI motility, and emesis. This is pretty memorable because the patient is really messy with fluids running out of every orifice. Something that's not mentioned in the mnemonic for sludge is bronchorrhea, which is fluid in the lungs. And this is actually one of the more dangerous components of this toxidrome. If we see patients with organophosphate poisoning and bronchorrhea, we treat it with atropine and pralidoxime depending on what was ingested. The next toxidrome I'd like to talk about is the anticholinergic toxidrome. Again, a classic example of an anticholinergic drug is diphenhydramine or tricyclic antidepressants can also cause this as part of their syndrome. When you see an anticholinergic toxidrome, the patient is mad as a hatter, red as a beet, hot as a hare, and blind as a bat. And what this means is they have delirium, they're flushed, often their temperature is elevated, and they have dilated pupils so they can't see very well. We usually treat this toxidrome, depending on what causes it, with benzodiazepines and supportive care. There is a drug called physostigmine that is an antidote for anticholinergic toxidrome, and this can be considered, but please consult your poison center or your friendly neighborhood toxicologist if you're thinking about giving physostigmine. And finally, in the category of toxidromes, let's talk about the opioid toxidrome. So when a patient has an opioid overdose, they present with meiosis or small pupils, hypoventilation, breathing slowly, bradycardia, hypotension, and coma. If you see this toxidrome, a constellation of symptoms that looks like the opioid toxidrome, please get some naloxone ready. So let's move on now to talk about a little bit about diagnostic testing. So in toxicology, we like to get some labs. Usually some electrolytes will be obtained, and you can use those electrolytes to calculate the anion gap. And when you think about the anion gap in toxicology, what we really want to know are, are there unaccounted anions or organic acids that are present contributing to this gap? And when you see a patient with an elevated anion gap and acidosis, the mnemonic to think through is mud piles. Methanol, uremia, diabetic ketoacidosis, peraldehyde, which you will rarely see nowadays, iron, isoniazid, lactic acid, ethylene glycol, or salicylates. So if you have a patient with an elevated anion gap and acidosis, think through the mud piles mnemonic to see if there's a chance your patient may have ingested one of the toxins on that list. Toxicologists also love to nerd out about the osmolar gap, which is the difference between the measured osmolarity and the calculated osmolarity. If there's a big difference between those two, then we think about toxic alcohols. Example of those are methanol, ethylene glycol, isopropyl alcohol, and then less toxic but still in this category, regular ethanol or alcohol. I usually think about methanol and ethylene glycol as poisons that you put in your car. Methanol is windshield washer fluid and ethylene glycol is typically antifreeze. We'll talk more about toxic alcohols in a future podcast.
Next up, let's talk about the talk screen. Talk screen or urine drug of abuse screen. Depending on where you work, it's typically a urine immunoassay that looks for between 5 and 10 common drugs of abuse. For those of us who have gotten a lot of these talk screens, we know that there are commonly false positives due to drugs cross-reacting. Also, there can be some false negatives. It's not always sensitive for some classes of drugs. The biggest example of those that I can think of is benzodiazepines. So while sometimes a talk screen can be useful, in general, I think that history and physical exam are much more helpful than a drug of abuse screen. Depending on where you work, some hospitals may also offer a longer or more comprehensive tox screen, which is also a urine test. This will test for more, but not all of the drugs in the world. Also, depending on where you work, the turnaround time might be long. So the question for you about sending this screen from me is, will it really change your management? Or can you get all the information you need from history and physical exam? So what about blood testing and toxicology? There are some drugs that can be measured in the serum by getting serum levels. We almost always, for a patient with an unknown ingestion, will ask for an acetaminophen and a salicylate serum level. The reason for those is because those medications are super common at home. So almost everyone has access to them. And also, in the case of acetaminophen, at least, the initial presentation can be really, really mild. And so the only way, besides a good history, of knowing if acetaminophen has been ingested is by getting a level. We'll talk much more about acetaminophen and salicylates in a future podcast. Other drugs that I think about getting levels of are seizure drugs and iron and lithium if those medications are at home. So the real question to the family is not necessarily what could he or she have ingested, although that sometimes is a nice question to ask, but really what does this child have access to at home? And if there's something at home that can be easily measured with a serum level and the toxidrome or constellation of symptoms fits with that medication, then that's the time that you're going to ask for a serum level of one of those drugs. So finally, in the diagnosis category, let's talk about EKGs. We've talked about bradycardia and tachycardia already, so let's talk about intervals in EKGs. The interval in the EKG that I most care about in toxicology is the QRS. If the QRS is wide, definitely wakes me up when I'm getting a toxicology call on a patient. QRS prolongation is caused by sodium channel blockade. When the sodium channel is blocked, phase zero of the action potential is affected and prolongs the QRS. In toxicology, we generally call a QRS greater than 100 milliseconds wide. And the reason for that often is from tricyclic antidepressant ingestion or a drug that mimics tricyclic antidepressants, so TCA-like drugs or sodium channel blocking drugs. When you see a patient with a new wide QRS, we treat with IV sodium bicarb. And we'll talk more about that in future podcasts as well. What about the QTC interval? I do care about that one too. Prolonged QTC is common. Um, the reason for it is blockade of the delayed rectifier 
potassium channel, which prolongs repolarization. Also, if the QRS is wide, the QTC measurement will also be prolonged. It's fairly common to see a prolonged QTC, even with therapeutic dosing of some medications like antidepressants, but it also can be prolonged in overdose. If you have a patient with a prolonged QTC, make sure to check electrolytes, including potassium, magnesium, and calcium. Correct them if needed. Make sure the patient is monitored for worsening. The complication that we worry about, but that is rare, is torsades. If you see torsades, treat with magnesium and pacing or defibrillation if the patient is hemodynamically unstable. Thank you so much for tuning in to Tuesday Talks Talks. I'll be back next week with an overview of decontamination and enhanced elimination for your poisoned pediatric patients. Thanks so much. Thank you, Susan. That's all for episode one of season one of the talk series here on Pem Currents. The next episode will focus on decontamination and elimination. And I'm also proud to offer CME and MOC Part 2 through Cincinnati Children's. You can check out more information and links in the show notes and on PEMblog.com. We would be delighted if you left feedback. You can shoot me a message on Twitter. I'm at PEMtweets or leave a comment on the blog. Let us know what you'd like to hear in upcoming episodes and seasons. Because let's face it, there's a lot of things that kids can get into. Until next time, this has been Brad Soboleski for PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast.